0: We welcome today to the podcast Jordan Daniel Wood.
1: Jordan has his Ph.D. in historical theology from Boston College. His first book has just been released by the University of Notre Dame Press. The title of the book is The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus Confessor, with a foreword by John Baer. So welcome, Jordan Daniel Wood, to the Grace Saves All podcast.
2: Thank you very much, David, for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Well, why don't we begin by you just giving kind of a snapshot of yourself, your spiritual journey to date?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I was um, I was raised um, in the uh, Stone Campbell movement, which I think you're familiar with, the Restoration Movement, Stone Campbell. And my mother was raised, I think, loosely Lutheran my father was raised in the churches of christ sort of based out of tennessee non-instrumental church of christ so by the time i came along our family was in the christian church part of the wing of that uh, that'd be an independent
1: christian church
2: yeah exactly independent christian churches okay and so um i was raised in that tradition my whole family is still in that tradition i'm i'm not we'll get to that in a second but but um I did go to a Bible college, a prominent Bible college of that tradition. It's actually where I started my college career, studying Greek and the scriptures and uh, all that good stuff. And I had basically had aspirations um, to become a preacher um, or a minister of some sort in that tradition. And while I was at Bible college, of course, as one does when one studies the Bible, um, (laughs) you start to have questions and you start to wonder, and particularly for me, I was wondering, I kind of wondered what had been going on and during all these years that I wasn't hearing as much about since, say, 100 AD. And so I, I wanted to know, you know, I, what what was going on between, you know, the Apostle John's passing and, say, the Cane Ridge Revival. Uh, so I decided to uh, look a little bit more into church history. And specifically, I was really fascinated by how Christians throughout the centuries had interpreted scripture, and sometimes quite differently than the way I was being introduced to or being uh, kind of taught to to interpret it. So that's what I—that's how I say I kind of got interested in what you might call the greater Christian tradition, East and West, uh, was mainly a, around the questions of biblical interpretation or hermeneutics. And so I started studying a figure uh, called. Origin of Alexandria, I'm sure you've mentioned him several times on this podcast. Yes. And, um, and he, you know, uh, that perhaps that's where I first had the seeds of interest in, uh, or universal reconciliation, because he of course, uh, taught that as well. And so I, I got fascinated by the tradition that you can consider him as the pioneer of say the Alexandrian Christian tradition. Uh, with with other figures such as St. Gregory of Nyssa, the Cappadocian Fathers of Agrius, and St. Maximus' Confessor. And so I went on from the Bible College, decided to to focus more on the history of Christian theology, or what's sometimes called historical theology. And I did so at St. Louis University, did a master's there in historical theology, and ended up, as you said, at Boston College doing a PhD in historical theology, specifically uh, in the thought and life and writings of St. Maximus the Confessor. So that's now while I was at Boston and a little before that, actually, my wife and I had spent one year in France. And while we were there, we started she was raised Catholic. My wife was. And so she uh, we started attending mass at these more or less almost empty churches in France. uh, But it was really moving. It was a special time for us. And so I, I became kind of more open to the possibility of maybe uh, becoming Catholic or Orthodox. And I oscillated between the two for quite a long time and um, ended, up, ended up becoming Roman Catholic about seven or eight years ago. And um, that's where I currently am. Uh, I have taught on university level, taught high school even, in a Catholic high school. And then uh, the last year or so, I've been a stay-at-home dad uh, to my young four daughters. And so that's, and and I do uh, theology when I can.
1: Well, I I know when I, it's interesting that you were at St. Louis University. David Bentley Hart was there for a while. Didn't your paths cross there?
2: Actually, I think we we missed each other by exactly one year. Um, And I didn't really meet, I had met David one time. And, uh, but we really kind of got to know each other better to sort of corresponding when I was already in Boston. So, yeah, we, we missed each other at SLU. Um, though we had a kind of common circle, we knew common, you know, common colleagues and friends. So,
1: well, when I've talked with David Bentley Hart, he's a member of the Orthodox church, but mm-hmm. what he says is, um, he's just a member. He's a member of the church. He's not, he's not ordained in the, you know, his theological positions and views, um, are his own. Um, so how does that, how would that work for you in a similar kind of way or?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly not a, uh, so I'm not even an official, you know, I don't even have a professorship (laughs) in a Catholic, uh, like theology department. Um, I've, I've, I've held them here and there briefly, but I, um, yeah, I'm just a member of the church and I guess, you know, as a Roman Catholic, you do have to, and, I, and I have, I'm partial, by the way, more towards the what are called the Eastern Catholic churches. And probably if my situation were more practically set up on a week-to-week basis and there was a parish close by, I would probably be Eastern Catholic. Like a, lot, a lot of my, well, several of my friends are. But, I, um, but it, it doesn't really make sense for our family where we are. But, um, you know, there is this, there is, of course, uh, you know, if you're going to do theology, as a Catholic, I think perhaps in a way that wasn't true uh, in the tradition I grew up in, you do have this, you do have this kind of massive, um, for one thing, you got a massive tradition to, to look to. You have a lot of other authorities to look to and to sift through and they don't always agree with each other. And when you do have what Catholics call the Roman, you know, the magisterium, which is a kind of, um, you know, it's it's the Pope is sort of the head of it. You have the College of Cardinals and so forth. You have the CDF. You you got Vatican, right? You got all this sort of. Um, you have these uh, the, the priests and bishops, which are charged w- with the teaching, you know, mission and authority of the Church. Now, what I do think some happens sometimes with certain Catholics is that they kind of mistake the sheer quantity and, as it were, the weight of the magisterium uh, f- for clarity. <laughs> Like as if, if you just because you have so much more maybe to work with than say solo scriptura folks do, that somehow mm-hmm. that means all the questions have been much more adequately and absolutely answered. And I actually think if anything is true, it sort of tends to go the other way because the more you have, and I think in the last, in the 20, 20th century Catholic theology, this happened quite a bit with certain movements that were popular or, or trends that occurred in the 20th century where you kind of opened up the greater tradition, even greater than say the Latin West. You know, and even greater than just the scholastics of the Middle Ages uh, and the schoolmen like Thomas Aquinas and Saint Bonaventure and Scotus and all them, You open it up to further and further back to patristics and some Eastern figures and Church Fathers that perhaps weren't as studied as, as you mentioned before. And and, um, and 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 what what you get is a lot of richness. And, and what you also get is not necessarily a total and complete univocal voice, like everyone's saying the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. You get uh, which. I have to say in, in passing for me was that is what when I learned scholasticism at, at Boston College under what I consider great but relatively unknown fi- folks like Professor Stephen Brown, um, uh, Jean-Luc Soler is a, is a philosophy medieval philosophy professor there. One of the things you learn there when you really get into the sources and you really start reading these figures and the lesser known guys that hardly anyone's ever heard of, but that were also just as lively at the time. Is you kind of you get the sense of the sheer richness and the variety and the speculative creativity of how to understand what might seem to, for many people, to be pretty obvious and plain and clear as day things. I was just reading the other day a, a short article by another one of these figures of the scholars today named Trent Pomplin, who's an incredible mind in the history of medieval and Christian, uh, Latin Christian um, thought. And he was talking about just the idea of eternity, something pretty relevant for our our topic, you know. Right. Eterni- eternity, eternitas and uh, and uh, perpetuitas and all this stuff and these Latin words and pena, pina, which is usually translated like punishment, like eternal punishment pina. Uh and he was he was just going over the sheer variety of the way different scholastics and medieval theologians thought of all these terms. And it's by no means uniform at all. It's very <laughs> so all that to say, there's this um there's a kind of a, i think an initial illusion that well since we have so much more to look at and to bring to bear on a, a given issue we must therefore have already considered all of the uh, ins and outs and all the potential questions that might arise and i i just think that's probably not the case at all and so if you go on the internet and you and you look for you look at like you know say internet catholic apologists or self published uh, catholic defenders of the faith or so on you're going to get this sense that Catholicism is more or less fairly clear and very settled and official and everything is handed down on a, on a golden platter um, and you just need to receive it and that's it. But I, I think that's actually quite a disservice not only to um, Catholic theology, say, in the 20th century, but it's it's also a disservice to the richness of the tradition, even within just Latin scholastic uh, you know, theology, let alone the greater Eastern uh, sources of the tradition.
1: Well, say a little bit about the Eastern Catholic Church, because I, I don't think most people are aware of the Eastern Catholic Church.
2: Yeah, so um, so in fact, there are about 22 to 24 Eastern Catholic Churches. I mean, this is one thing sometimes people don't realize is that the Catholic Church isn't simply the Roman Catholic Church. It's just the Roman Catholic Church is actually one church uh, among other Catholic churches, all of whom are in communion with one another and the Pope. So that's what makes them Catholic, is that they're in communion with the Bishop of Rome. Uh, But uh, there are, you know, Maronite Catholic churches. There is the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. There are many different, uh, there are 22 to 24, depending on how you count, Catholic churches that are not Latin and not Roman. And what, in that, that there's a, for example, the Vatican II Council, there's a whole, um, section of an important uh, document there from that council dedicated to discussing the Eastern Catholic churches and encouraging them to stay true to their own local traditions, their their own history. A lot of them celebrate the Eastern liturgy of, uh, say, St. John Chrysostom or St. Basil the Great that St. David Bentley Hart encounters in the Orthodox church that he goes to, right? There are Eastern Catholic churches that celebrate actually that liturgy, not the Roman Latin liturgy, mm-hmm. either the Latin Mass or the Novus Ordo.
1: I interviewed I interviewed a uh, scholar from the Ukrainian mm-hmm. Catholic Church, and the Eastern Catholic tradition, he said there was m- more for him there that resonated with an apocatastasis approach, and yes. that was... And there was some synergy, I guess you could say, with the Orthodox, right? Um,
2: yes, and that's a that's a common theme. I mean, for one thing, again, they're sharing the the same liturgy. And say say if you look at the liturgy of Saint uh, the Divine Liturgy of uh, Holy Week in the East, some of the stuff there, the Triumph of Christ overall, you know, the Descent into Hell, the Harrowing of Hell, uh, these are really powerful images that kind of give us sort of universalist. Uh, I've seen papers and articles written on this, right? The kind of universalist themes implicit in the liturgy. So they're sharing those resources. But as you said, and as this guest, you had, I'm sure was pointing out that, you know, like, look, just take a concrete example. If you look at the Roman Catholic catechism right now on the subject of hell, look at who they cite, right? As authorities, you're going to get, of course, St. Augustine. You will get some maybe from St. Ambrose and St. Jerome. I have to go back and look exactly. but You know, you're, these are sort of the, the usual suspects, right? Mm-hmm. Augustine, Jerome, the kind of, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, of course. So you'll get these kind of maybe St. Gregory of the Great, maybe St. Bernard of Clairvaux. So you'll get these. These are the normal ones that are that are cited. And then, of course, some councils as well, like Lateran uh, 12, 15, Lateran 4. Um, but then if you look at the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Catechism, on their subject in hell, in the end, you get origin, Saint Gregory of Nisa and Saint Maximus. <laughs> yeah, that was
1: exactly that was exactly the point that this scholar was pointing out to me. He said exactly mm-hmm. that same thing,
2: right? And so there's this, you know, and if you look at the Second Vatican Council, there's there's a sort of there's this um, one document in particular. It's called Unitatis Reintegratio. Which which is about it's more broadly about ecumenism, and so it speaks about the Protestants. It speaks about Eastern Orthodox. But it also has this moment where it speaks about the uh, Eastern. Well, actually, I I could just stick with the when he's talking about East and West generally, Eastern Orthodox and and Catholics. There's they explicitly say, you know, we need to celebrate each other the riches of each other's tradition, because it's it sort of stands to reason that. One side or, or set of, tr- uh, of resources might illuminate better the mysteries of the Christian faith than, than another. And so we, we have to learn from one another. We can't assume that kind of the fullness of the riches of the mystery of Christ are simply deposited and limited or isolated to one sliver of the greater tradition. And I think if that's true for the central mysteries of the Christian faith, I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of more or less talking about the Trinity and incarnation, like some central stuff. I mean, how much more will that be the case when we go looking and sort of bringing in these different uh, understandings that have been, that actually have been there all along, but we just we just weren't aware of that. And so, yes, I totally can understand why why uh, uh, it's partly why I'm personally drawn to more of an Eastern Catholic. If I had a practical situation where that made sense, I probably would have already uh, become Eastern Catholic rather than uh, Roman Catholic. But yeah, anyway, so that's the makes sense to me
1: well so you've had a pretty broad experience and if you're in the um if you're in what you call the restoration christianity or the stone uh stone campbell movement it's i'll just say it's very bible centered a lot of discussion about scripture not too much conversation about early church fathers Mm -hmm. it it more or less skips from the the book of acts to the American frontier and as you mentioned, you know, the revivals that were happening on the American frontier. So, I thought we might discuss Lee Strobel's critique of Christian universalism because it resonates with the kind of things that you would hear from somebody that's coming out of a Bible tradition yeah. or kind of a more of an evangelical fundamentalist tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you've had some You've seen both, you've seen all sides of the fences here. So I thought it would be interesting just to have a conversation based on some of the things that Lee Strobel raises in his book.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. And I wanted to say something about that. Uh, That's one of the things that it's an enduring uh, gratitude that I have to my childhood tradition and to the tradition I went to Bible college in that restoration movement was that I was at 18 years old forced to... uh, be studying Greek, you know, go to Greek class at 7 a.m. every morning, you know, of the week as an 18-year-old because of that emphasis on Scripture. You know, I took two years of Hebrew and Aramaic and Ugaritic and everything else you can think of, which <laughs> um, which which was which I look back on now, truly grateful. So that kind of emphasis on, on the Scriptures, in fact, if anything, I will say that having become Catholic, I very often am even more appreciative of that initial training because I I, do, I know there are stereotypes and caricatures of Catholics, so they don't read the Bible and so on. Well, that's kind of true, actually, <laughs> at least <laughs> broadly speaking. Um, and so it's kind of amazing. It's great to bring these things together, right? And that's one of the things that uh, uh, before I was even Catholic, Hans Hansworth von Balthasar, a Swiss uh, theologian, you may have mentioned him as well. He's oh, yeah. Awesome. Relevant to all yeah, these, yeah, he debates. comes up.
1: He comes up prominently in this discussion.
2: He says in the first fifty pages of his book on the theology of Karl Barth, which is an excellent book and which Barth himself really loved. He says, you know, he he depicts the 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 disunity among Christians and the various traditions uh, that have grown up as a dividing of the treasure, right, that God gave us in Christ. So that it's not it's not that there's only like one side has it all right and the other side doesn't have it. It's actually that the riches given to us have been distributed such that we're all poorer. And I always loved that image. And this was before I was Catholic and I was really moved by that because I really had that sense. It's like, you know, it's the sad thing here isn't just that we don't get along or that we have different ways of doing church, different ways of reading the Bible or whatever. It's that we actually are poorer. We are poorer the longer we stay apart from each other and sort of hoard our riches to ourselves like, you know, dragons in a cave somewhere. And so I, I think uh, I think that I, I'm still very grateful to my, in my own biography, I've sort of autobiography, I've sort of had the uh, privilege to be trained in that scripture-centered focus. And in a lot of ways, I don't feel like I've ever left it. I don't leave that behind for something else. I bring it together with the riches of other things that I found uh, in where I am now, number one. And number two, the other thing I was going to say before we jump into the specifics of this uh, discussion, you know, tradition in so many ways comes from and is always about reading the Bible. I mean, it's something that Vatican II says pretty clearly in Dei Verbum, it's, it's, but I find just historically, as someone who's a student of church history, who's studied this stuff, especially the early century 700, first first seven hundred years of the church, it's amazing how often it's not that everyone you know. It's not that every everyone was sitting around saying something like, "Well, you know, is Jesus really God or not?" Let's just abstract that and let's ask these fun questions and sort of uh, I do like uh, you know. Um, uh, you know Sort of mental uh, hypothetical situation, sort of questions, and try to resolve them. They're reading the text, they're reading the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, Jesus says that He doesn't know the hour and the day. You know, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. So what do what? How does what does that mean for His relation to the Father and whether they are equally God, right? So it arises that those questions, which then get into all these kind of sophisticated debates, it arises out of reading the Gospels, Scripture. And so in similar, you know, the first controversy of the, church, controversy of the church, I would like to point out, is Marcionism, Marcionite, right? But it's really around what belongs in the Bible and what should we read because these don't seem to hang together. So internally to what Christians call Old Testament New Testament, it gave rise to the first controversy of the church. And so the tradition can't really develop except as a, as a perpetual ongoing conversation about how, to, how best to read scripture. Uh, because that's the testimony at the at the site of right God's self revelation in Christ, so it's all. To, I hope that these sorts of discussions, like the one we're about to have, and I hope we can see that actually that the riches, if we come back together and no matter where we are, whatever affiliation is, you know, that that's the kind of power that that lies there in ecumenical dialogue.
1: All right. Well, let's just go. I'll just read these uh, critiques that mm-hmm. uh, Strobel and Copan make in. Uh, Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Heaven. First, a Christian universalism goes against the church's traditional position of eternal conscious torment established by such notable figures as Tertullian, Lactantius, Basil of Caesarea, Jerome, Cyril of Jerusalem, Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, and Wesley. As Lee Strobel summarizes, universalism falls outside the pale of the mainstream Christian tradition, although there are pockets of it in church history. How would you respond to that?
2: Well, <laughs> I have to say the first thing is it's, it is. So I grew up, uh, as I said, in Stone Campbell tradition. I also really was into poly- apologetics. I read the case for Christ as a teenager. I was sitting in my English class as a 17 year old reading that, reading William Lane Craig and all these other apologists. It, it does strike me, though, as sort of funny to make that sort of argument whenever you say are in a tradition that like doesn't uh, respect the papacy. Or doesn't uh, have an episcopal structure because you could make the exact same sort of argument, right? You'd say, well, look, uh, look at everybody that has held that the only way you can sort of faithfully partake of the Eucharist is by being in communion with a bishop who is in communion with other bishops. Like, let's start with St. Ignatius, let's go to St. Irenaeus, let's go to St. Augustine, let's go to St. Yeah. So it's funny because I feel like in other issues, I don't think someone like Strobel will really want to make that argument. Uh, that it's outside the pale of the mainstream of Christian tradition. Well, it's outside the pale of the mainstream of Christian tradition is not to have Episcopal structure to your church. But somehow that's okay, right? Or it's out, it's outside of the pale, really, to not consider the Eucharist actually the body and blood of Christ, the real presence. But, you know, I think for some of these guys, that would be okay. It's just a symbol. So I think it is kind of funny that it's a little selective to use this kind of argument whenever you want to uh, write. But let's just go ahead and go with it and say um, it. I will say up front, and this is, of course, as a Catholic, of course, I get this all the time as well. It's not just from the Strobel's. It's it's from people that, you know, Catholic tradition were Augustine or the Reformed tradition. Augustine is still hugely important. He's an authority of some kind of Aquinas, Bonaventure, all these different people. Now, my point would be that I actually think probably Strobel and I would agree on the idea that that argument in and of itself, while deserving to be addressed or at least considered be brought into consideration, certainly can't settle anything. As I've mentioned, he's already, I think, on probably a different side of other issues that certainly are outside of the pale of Christian uh, tradition, if you're going to look at it from, from the greater tradition's perspective. So we could do a thing where we could line up names, right? What, what happens? We could do an Abelard thing, Seek It Known, where he writes this thing, says, look, the church fathers, <laughs> they disagree. They're not. There's not just one consensus. I could say, sure, that's true. And there's no doubt about if you're going to just take a census of writers, that we know of at least. Um, it's certainly the case that uh, eternal conscious torment as opposed to say universalism and certainly as opposed to annihilationism which is even less of a, a representative view. Eternal conscious torment is the main line but it doesn't mean therefore that universalism, I think even at one part, part in their chapter they, they at least acknowledge this. It doesn't mean that universalism is any, like new. It doesn't mean like Rob Bell started it. Uh, <laughs> It, mm-hmm. it, we we can list we can say right Saint Clement of Alexandria, already there pretty pretty clearly Origin of Alexandria second third century already there uh, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, very clearly into the fourth century already there Evagrius Ponticus already there Didymus the Blind already there, uh, I in my opinion Saint Maximus Confessor already there Saint Isaac Nineveh no question right so we can go on and on and say sure there and these these people I just named were from the second century to the seventh. So, so yes, there, yes, it's true that I certainly, and especially in the West, uh, eternal conscious torment was the mainline tradition. But it doesn't mean that there was no significant presence of, of universalist. And, and of course, there's that famous passage or infamous, depending on how you look at it. We're talking just about people that, that whose writings we have, right? That's actually, by as a side note, that's a little bit of a part of the scandal. Of Saint Isaac of Nineveh, uh, his, some of his most explicitly universalist, I mean, absolutely the second part of the second part of his ascetical treatises, those weren't found until the mid twentieth century. So it was a little awkward because he was this great venerated, and he still is, venerated master in the ascetic monastic tradition, especially in the East, writing in Syriac, and you find out later that he he uh, these writings that we had had not had access to for so long. We find them, and we find him very clearly and adherent to universalism. And so we're discussing just the writings that we have, right? And Strobel's just listing names of people that we have who certainly were, I think, Basil the Great, I would take a little issue with there. I think there's really only one text that suggests that he wasn't a universalist, and that's been debated pretty hotly. But Basil's also the one who, and Augustine in a certain place, testifies to the fact that universalism was pretty common I, I I don't go so far as to say it was like the official dominant view or anything like that some people in the past have made that argument but the point is it was a fairly intuitive and common notion at least well enough for that to be noted that the quote the majority or a great uh, a great number of Christians assume for example the fires of hell or temporary he says that at one part so so I would say my response to Strobel would be, this argument can't really settle anything, and I think you already know that because you wouldn't want to use it on a whole bunch of other issues. And and number two, then when we if we are going to consider the Christian tradition, it's just as old as eternal conscious torment universalism is, and some pretty massive luminaries of the tradition have held it. And I haven't included anybody in the modern era. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, sure, we need to be careful. I think if you're going to argue for something that's way outside... Uh, the pale. And I don't even think universalism is way outside the pale. It's uh, it's outside the majority, but it's not way outside. But if you're going to do that, of course, you gotta um, you have to uh, take that into account, and it should bid us to become more careful uh, about what we say and how we argue. But I don't think it really settles anything. So we'll have to go elsewhere to to rightly assess that kind of argument. I think.
1: What What I've said before is that when I think about the word tradition you're thinking about, okay, we're going back to what was it like in the earliest period. And so I would say, well, the earliest period is that there were different different points of view about this and that a universalist view was well known. Uh, there were other, The other views were uh, accepted. When they tried to figure out uh, the most important things, uh, it really had to do about the what the scriptures were going to be, what is the nature of Christ. But as far as how the ultimate eschatological judgment turns out—that was left open. There will be judgment, mm-hmm. but how it actually resolves itself, there are different opinions mm-hmm. on that. And it was a, a lively conversation within Christian community. And nobody thought at that time to uh, disfellowship somebody who held a universalist position. Some of the people that held those positions were some of the leading figures in even putting together what we now consider kind of the basis of the, the basics of the Orthodox faith. So mm-hmm. I would distinguish, I would say that's the earliest tradition. And then I would say after that comes what many people call the Western Christian tradition. Now, once you get into the Western Christian tradition in the early Middle Ages, now that does become centered in on uh, the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. I think one of the reasons it does leads to it is, is on the second question that Strobel brings up, because mm-hmm. the second question is that the main advocate of Christian universalism was Origen. And he was mm-hmm. condemned as a heretic by the church at the fifth ecumenical council in 553 AD. So mm-hmm. that does kind of mark the, kind of the beginning of this, at least as I think of early middle ages, Western Christian tradition of eternal conscious torment, where, where it really becomes the kind of official view in the condemnation of origin at that council. But that story is a little more complicated. And mm-hmm. I thought I'd ask your thoughts on it.
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing I, I'd say just to... Shout out here. has There's a book recently published called Destined for Joy by Father Alvin Kimmel, the retired Orthodox priest, and he's got a really great chapter that he he worked through and he had a lot of people that before he published it on exactly this question was origin or was I think his question is more specific. It was was apocatostasis or universalism condemned as a heresy in 553. The upshot, after all these, there's all kinds of details you can look in there. He's got it all laid out there. He does, and you can also
1: find it. you can also find that article <coughs> online. Just, just, online at yes. Eclectic Orthodoxy.
2: Yes, 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 exactly, and and with accompanying comments and, and discussion. So basically, the upshot is there's actually remarkably little evidence that those canons. There's about fifteen of them. So there's two different things. On the one hand. Their origin is named along with Didymus and Evagrius as condemned. Just their names. I think Anyone? that's the
1: eleventh, the eleventh canon.
2: Yeah, and it's very, and so that's that's there, and it's it's just sort of vague because because the question, of course, would be, well, why? <laughs> like, what what exactly? Because it can't be. I'll put put this out there very clearly. It, the point isn't it can't be that everything in these guys' writings is wrong and heretical. That can't be the case. I mean, St. Maximus explicitly makes use of Evagrius. People did this all the time. People are using, or even St. Jerome, using origins, interpretations of all kinds of different scriptural passages all the time, even post-controversy, and then even later after the so-called official condemnation. So it can't be that it's not just a simplistic everything that's ever been written or associated with this guy's name is wrong that 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 simply isn't true. But the but so the question then becomes and this is something I'll, I have to say a lot especially in my context in the Catholic context where heresy is often thrown around as well just based on you know uh, this or that council or statement. I actually don't respect <laughs> say how to word this uh, I don't really respect a bl- a bald assertion with something as weighty as heresy. Heretic, condemned, anathema—has that happened? Of course, but you have to be as as specific and as unique. Like Cardinal Avery Dulles, I think, said this in the Catholic Church: it has to be as 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 uh, contextual as the original uh, uh, condemnation itself was. Like, for example, I always ask people: show me where in the entire tradition universalism is condemned. Well, the word doesn't show up. Right? Universalism is a construct, it's an ism that we use to cover many different nuanced views. Sometimes they don't even agree with each other. So what exactly is being condemned? Well, if you read the canons, so there's, there's one issue here is that a lot of historians have even doubted these canons belong to that council. And so, for example, Norman P. Tanner, when he reprinted the council in its original uh, languages and everything like that he even left these out. He didn't even have them in there. Well,
1: those were there. the the imperial, the imperial anathemas. Yeah. The, you know, the imperial anathemas uh, Tanner left out. The 11th canon is part of the, is part of the record, but right. it's just, the, the name origin is there. It's and just this the is, name. This is what Al Kimmel points out. Exactly. Well, you've got some imperial anathemas that probably preceded the council, but imperial anathemas are not statements no. of the ecumenical
0: Church, oh, yeah. but what
1: happened is is the imperial anathemas and the council got inflated and interpreted right. and kind of I'll say just sort of dumbed down and simplified, yeah. and in, ends up becoming a hammer against yes. both Origin and Apocatastasis.
2: Right, and look, it's uh, for one thing we should note that uh, names can be condemned and rescinded their condemnation. That happened, for example, to Theodore of Mopsuestia, who was condemned, and then a later council said, "Never mind, he's not condemned." And then a later one says he is. So, so that happens. It's not like that's uh, unheard of. And so, uh, but then the other thing is that, yeah, is is there there's a conflation, like you said, a, a, a Roman, a Byzantine emperor can't make doctrine or dogma right out of just sheer will but also there's uh there's there's the question of let's just give the worst case okay let's let's make it hardest for for people like you and me let's say that they are right there in the middle of the council ecumenical council the canons are there there's no question they 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 they, and they go on and they say yes we are condemning origin for these specific reasons and you give that say 13 to 15 canons that try to describe all these points of doctrine that they're rejecting right Let's just say that all of that is totally bona so right there, official. Well, even then, you have to ask, what exactly is being condemned? And it's fairly clear, if you follow the logic of the canons, that what they're condemning is an entire story. A whole story, one of whose parts was the necessary restoration of of a primordial henad or unity, according to which, before this life, we all... Lived in uni- unity with God, but then we got tired of God and we fell away from God. And then God created the world, uh, the material world, to catch us in various bodies in order to bring us back through Christ and to restore. Apokatastasis means right restoration. Uh, to restore the original divine primordial Hinned to its former right unity. And yeah. If you read the
1: If you read the imperial anathemas, that's what's in the anathemas.
2: I mean, there's a specific phrase there that says. And the and the uh, something like the abominable uh, apocasis which follows from this, right. exactly, which follows from this necessarily. So it's explicitly trying to link that version of apocasis with this entire grand metanarrative, which it's rejecting. Now, the reason why it's important to be very specific about all this then is that a universalism as some kind of generic position is certainly not in view. It's not even there. Uh, but B, this particular version of it. I mean, we got scholars today still arguing whether or not Origen even held anything like that, or if that was Evagrius, and if he did, and so forth. So it's very, very specific. And I say this last last point on this: we need we uh, if you accept Nicaea, say just as a part of the Christian faith that you think is important in any way, then you have to contend with the fact that one of the anathemas of Nicaea is cursed be anybody who says that the son differs from the father in essence and in hypostasis in person. Well, of course, as you know, by the time you get to Chalcedon, it's, it's now obligatory to say that the only way the father and the son differ is by person. They're two different persons, but they're one essence. And so the question would be, well, hold on a second. Is Nicaea just flatly in contradiction with, say, Chalcedon, two different ecumenical councils? Well, no, anyone would want to say, well, you know, Nicaea, it's a little different. There's specific things in view. There's a nuance here. There's development that happened. And so they don't mean the same thing. Okay, fine. I agree with that. But then why wouldn't we do that with, say, like a council like 553? Why, would, why is it that all of a sudden what's condemned there is now very abstract and covers every possible version of universal restoration? You don't need to think about the specifics, right? And so I think that's just an irresponsible way, even of reading ecumenical councils generally.
1: Right, and the 5th Ecumenical Council was called to address the Monophysite controversy, and uh, that, which had not been, I guess, successfully resolved at, at Chalcedon.
2: Yeah, and there's a fairly good case that has been made historically that the inclusion of Origen, Evagrius, and Didymus' names was a kind of shrewd political calculation in order to condemn what was called the three chapters. Uh, the people that were supporting the three chapters, like Theodore Mopsuestia, uh, Theodoret of Cyrus and stuff like that, a certain sort of Christology that the emperor and the council wanted to resist. They also were concerned about originism. So it's sort of, some people have made the argument, this was kind of a striking the balance. Okay, listen, we'll put origin of Agrius, like the originist name in there, but we're also going to put your guys' names in there so that we sort of, right, uh, everyone loses and everyone wins. And so we're all together. <laughs>
1: Well, that is a that is a, a fascinating era and council to uh, study. All right, let's move on. Uh, another concern is a quote from Paul Copan. I believe universalism is an aberrant and dangerous doctrine. You certainly get no hint of it in the Old Testament, where Psalm one six reads, "For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction."
2: So this is a kind of theme. In fact, I when I looked at the uh, the list of of um, I guess, complaints or arguments that they had. Some some of them, by the way, I should note, aren't really arguments. They're sort of just assertions. Uh, I basically boiled down what, they, what I could see were arguments to about four of them. One of them was when we just uh, addressed about uh, the, the greater tradition, rejecting it, the main line, the mainstream. The other one is this other, this this comes up over and over again in, in these uh, uh, comments. And that is simply pointing to the fact that scripture talks about judgment, Destruction. Two groups very often comes up, right? Those those that are righteous and that will you know get a reward. Those that are unrighteous and wicked and will will suffer destruction or punishment, etc. Like Psalm One Six. I want to say very clearly that I don't know of a single. Maybe you do, but I don't know of a single Christian Universalist who would deny any of that. I don't know of a single Christian Universalist who would deny punishment. And uh, uh, even destruction for the wicked. In some sense, the question, of course, will come. Will we'll come to is well, what exactly is the nature of that destruction, and what's the purpose of it? But, I, but uh, I, you know, we, we we sort of forget, for example, like Evagrius Ponticus, right? I know he's got a checkered legacy and stuff, but. He, a lot of his writings, especially on spiritual discrimination and on prayer, were preserved in the Eastern tradition in this text called the Philokalia, very important for spirituality, Christian spirituality and asceticism, right? One of the things he, he keeps saying in, in his text on spiritual discrimination is to, to um, contemplate the punishments of hell. To consider always before your mind the punishment to come. Always think about and tremble at the fear of the coming judgment of the Lord, right? All these things that would are just as explicit as Psalm 1-6. But Evagrius, as we as we know from other texts, was explicitly and openly universalist in the same sort of way that St. Gregory of Musa was in origin. Origin Yeah, it made, has, me a
1: little un, it made me a little uncomfortable to look at the language of the early universalist tradition with regard to how severe they thought the purging of the evil would be in the coming ages. So they, they didn't just, they didn't, they weren't imagining some kind of slap on the wrist or mm. say you're sorry. They mm. were imagining ages upon ages of quite painful purification until the very last vestiges of the evil had finally been destroyed. And I've, that God would be in absolutely no hurry to do any of this and would no. not uh, con, you know, would not contribute anybody's free will and so this kind of purging or purification could go on for ages and ages and ages and it would only finally be at the end of the ages then that the purification would be complete and all would be restored so
0: mm-hmm. i mean
1: that's if <laughs> if you're looking to go somewhere to to get the get a vision of a god who's going to restore you and it's not going to it's not going to be long and drawn out or difficult don't go to the early these early church fathers because they had quite severe notions of what that purification would be, even if they thought it finally resulted in a universal restoration.
2: Which I think this is an important moment. This is a point uh, that we need to make here. Um, I think if if this is connected to one's view of what salvation really is, right? Because if you basically just have a a sort of final courtroom in mind, such that heaven and hell is a matter of, uh, say, a forensic or like a sentence or a verdict given to you and then a sentence. Are you guilty before God or are you innocent? Well, we can't be innocent on our own, so we need Christ's righteousness and innocence to sort of either be imputed to us or somehow uh, you know, be credited to us as our own merits, or however that works. And that's basically what salvation or judge that's what judgment is, and that's what it's salvation the, is. It's for the us
1: dismissal of the of the guilt verdict.
2: It's there, and the entire picture there is extremely, let's say, extrinsic. It's the judge is up there on the bench, I'm over here. The judge tells me, you know, here's all the records and the charges against me. I then have to give a defense, which will be inadequate. Or if I have Christ, however, you think that you get that, you get Christ is like the good lawyer who comes in, or the payer, or whoever, and he comes in and he takes the penalty, etc., etc., right. It's all very much like Christ is over there. He's either your advocate or not. Uh, the devil's over there making the case against you. He's 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 the sort of right the, the the lawyer against you. You got God the Father, I guess, up there. Who knows where the Spirit is? Usually, he doesn't show up in these scenarios. But um, <laughs> right. And it's all very like this is what it's going to c- come down to. Now, not not at all for certainly a lot of the fathers, not even just the Eastern ones, but certainly the ones you're you're referring to: Origin of I, Saint Maximus of Saint Gregory of Nyssa. Or, hey, even somebody more modern like George MacDonald, who I'm sure you've talked a lot about. Um, you could just read his sermon, The Last Farthing, and you'll get his a nice picture of what he considers to be uh, the payment. But here's here's the point. I go to a text like, let's go back to the Bible, right? i go to a text like uh, Colossians 3. Put to death the pieces of yourself which tend toward the earth. Right? Put off, in fact, he says the word, it's better translated, sever off and bury the ancient man so that you may put on the new man who, who will attain unto recognition according to the image of the creator, right? Because Christ is, that, at that point, Christ is and is in all things. Okay, so what what we get there is a picture of the salvation as a process of discrimination, that is to say a process of severing, and so the, for these sorts of thinkers, and I think for almost any Christian universalist that I know of, that's the problem, is I have so identified with the false image of myself in my own stupidity and delusion, I have run after things that cannot satisfy me. I've given myself over to to greed. I've given myself over to lust. I've given myself over to anger. I've given myself over to all the vices listed as well there in Colossians 3, I've given myself over so much so that I've tried to integrate them as pieces of myself. And the process of salvation, sure, it, it includes judging. But the word judgment, by the way, diakrisis in, in, in Greek, or krisis in Greek, means severing. And so the judgment isn't just a sentence head, held down. It's not a decision like God severs right from wrong in an abstract way. He severs it straight into, the, into your heart. Because you have integrated things into yourself that are false and that are not really who you are. And so the process of judgment, which, by the way, these thinkers and the entire philokalia, that Eastern ascetic tradition, imagines already going on right now. You can do this now. You can already, right? Peter says that the time is now that judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5, the day of salvation is now. Well, the day of salvation is also the day of judgment, I am not saying there isn't a, a final judgment. I'm just saying that we can already start to participate in God's judgment now in our souls. Through prayer, through discernment, through confession, through the sacraments, through works of mercy, through charity, through fasting, through all of this stuff. What we're doing is discerning. We're weeding out the the, the wheat from the tares in ourselves. And so because Paul is right. There is an old self, an ancient man, whom I have put on. And there's a new one. And I am this mixture of the two. And of course, Romans 7 gets at that as well. I am this mixture of the two. I look at another law at work in my members, right? So mm-hmm. I'm just saying there's so much there, even right there in the heart of the New Testament, that says that the true judgment is going to be excruciating precisely because it's so intimate to my own soul and to my, the troubles of my own spirit. And so, yes, you're totally right. The idea that Christian universalist will have some kind of pie in the sky, you know, candy land uh, trotting off to heaven uh, in the end is is really, it couldn't be more wrong.
1: Well, and you get also, when you get into the later prophets, you get some fairly universalistic visions of restorations and restorations of even places like Sodom and uh, restorations of creation. You know, you get to uh, uh, Lamentations and Lamentations 3, 31 for the mm-hmm. lord does not cast off anyone forever and it's talking about restoration there there's a lot of talk in the psalms about the love of god endures forever and you know mm-hmm. one of the themes of the psalms is the hesed or the 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 faithfulness of god you know
2: mm-hmm. towards
1: mm-hmm. us so to say that there's no hint of it <laughs> you know seems a little over the top
2: yeah i mean look at the end of amos Right? where where Amos for the entire time has been depicting corrupt Israel as a sort of uh, as a new Egypt which we really would have right and so that at one point in Amos chapter 5 I think he uses the same verb for passover God will pass over in the midst of you or through the midst of you which is an abiding critique of corrupt Israel and its kingship because it's saying you've become like a Pharaoh and God's going to do to you what he did to Pharaoh when he liberated you right and that's a who that's a that's a that's a biting remark. Well, at the end of the whole book, though, you still get right. Um, You still get this sense of uh, nevertheless, I will restore you. And then there's right, there's several parts of the prophets which also say things like, don't you know, I have I've also brought up you know, the Moabites out of wherever. And like, like I've done this many times and you're so, then there's the book of Jonah, by the way, which I don't know. I don't, I don't remember if they mentioned the book of Jonah, but St. Maximus does, for example, and exactly on the point we were just talking about. He says, he notices at one point, he says, you know, at one point God gets to the point with Nineveh where he just says they're going to be destroyed. Uh, Initially it was conditional. Like if they'll repent, we won't, I won't destroy, but I'm going to bring, uh, at some point they're, they're not repenting. It's like, Like around chapter three, it's like, okay, they're going to be destroyed. This is, it's over. And Maximus has someone write to him and says, you know, that's, that it's troubling me that God said he was going to destroy Nineveh. But of course, by the end of the book, we all know he doesn't. He saves, they repent and they sit in ash cloth, uh, ash and sackcloth. And so, uh, and Jonah's pretty mad (laughs) that Mm -hmm. they did. He thought the destruction was coming. And um, and Maximus says that he uses it because he's, of course, interpreting it figuratively. He says, Nineveh stands for every soul, stands for the church, all these other things, right? But one of the points he makes, he says, actually, both are true. That he says, in truth, God destroys and saves the same city. Exactly because, and this is going to get the heart of something I think we're going to talk about later because there are certain verses that they bring up. I want to talk about this in connection with the same idea. That the, that the structure of salvation is the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it is in no way contradictory to say that all will be saved and the wicked will be destroyed like Psalm 1-6 does, any more than it is to say that all will be resurrected in no way contradicts the idea that everyone dies. It's it's because the pattern isn't, you made it, good job, pat on your back. The pattern is you've been joined with the, with in death, with the death of the Son of God, who can overcome death and therefore you can be resurrected. Right. And so that's the pattern. That's the pattern with Saul's conversion to become Paul. That's the pattern, as I'll talk about later, even in the Apocalypse of John. But so it's, it's this idea that destruction, in fact, for these thinkers, for I think a good Christian universalist view, destruction is not just there or not contradictory. It's actually a necessary element. It's a necessary element in the salvation of all. It's not it's it's far from it being a, a, you know a contradiction or even just something that may or may not happen. It's actually seemingly necessary because you must die. you must die in order that you may be raised with, with the Son of God.
1: All right let's move on to the fourth concern we'll look at. Strobel admits that there is an emotional tug to the idea of all being saved. Paul Copan responds, Yes, who doesn't want everyone to be saved? Even God desires it, he declared, his eyes widening. As 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9 say, he wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth, but Christ is the potential Savior of all, not the actual Savior of all. In other words, salvation is universal in intent, that is God's desired will, but it is not achieved in fact, that is God's permissive will. While salvation is potentially offered to all, not all freely accept it. The scriptures, he continued, repeatedly indicate that there will always be creatures who fully and finally say no to God. Finite moral agents, whether angelic or human, have the capacity to choose contrary to God's moral order. Only God is necessarily good. He cannot do what is wrong. Same isn't true for contingent moral creatures like us who can choose lesser finite goods over the ultimate good. They can turn a good thing into a God substitute and fall prey to idolatry. So how would you respond to that one?
2: Well, uh so you know the first point there about how, of course, you know we no one wants anyone to go to hell, no one wants everyone wants we all want everybody to be saved in a certain sense. Later on, I just want to note here he's gonna kind of relinquish that idea when he gets to his interpretation of the prodigal son, where we're supposed to end up thinking, why not let the party go on inside even if your older brother stands on the outside? pouting. Uh, So there apparently, right. So there's this sort of, the other thing that I would want to say though, that's probably more to the point is that I just want to point out um, that, so this statement here, I wrote it down too, when I was looking at it, Um, you know, the the scriptures repeatedly indicate that there will always be creatures who fully and finally say no to God. Uh, Well, they don't actually, they don't say that. Um, That is an interpretation of them. I don't remember any verse that says finally this creature finally and fully like I suppose in full knowledge is what I would understand that to mean uh says no to god again we get pictures of destruction we get pictures of judgment we get we actually get pictures of annihilation if we want to if we want to be really literal in our interpretation of certain scriptures we could also just as well be annihilationist you don't you have to choose to prioritize certain images over other images of the end and then say that's what Scripture teaches. This is just the act of interpretation, which is fine. I mean, uh, Copan has every right to do that, but I, I, I don't think it's simply right to just say the Scriptures say over and over again. Like, for example, where is the verse that says that Jesus is the potential Savior of all rather than the actual I don't remember that qualification being introduced at all. Or what about like say Romans 11, you know, 33, where it says he, therefore he is handed over all to disobedience so that he, might- yeah.
1: Romans 11, Romans 11, 32
2: or 32. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 33 is when he says, you know,
1: the doxology. The
2: doxology. Yeah. You know, it doesn't say he might potentially have mercy upon all. Uh, right. <laughs> so I know they have more to say about all language later, but it just, it's just, uh, I just want to note that this isn't, this isn't just plainly reading the scriptures and just adhering to what they say, which is fairly clear. And anybody who say takes a universalist position is on, you know, kind of arguing or resisting the scriptures or, or sort of, no, it isn't. I mean, what, what you're saying is that we should not take Romans eleven thirty two as what it sounds like it's saying, which is he will in the indicative future indicative, he will show mercy upon all. What you're saying is he could maybe potentially show mercy upon all. And so you are interpreting in that a certain way that isn't the plain sense at all. And so, there, so that's fine. That's fine. We're all in this kind of, we all have to play that game where we're interpreting and so forth. It's just that that uh, this is why I sometimes have troubles with like simple appeals to scripture. It's not that universalists should be afraid of scripture at all. We've got all kinds of uh, scriptures that we could talk about. Uh, that would much more easily make sense, and we're going to talk about a few of them, I think, here soon. But I, I just think that that kind of statement—I mean, this isn't really an argument, right? This is sort of, this is just sort of from their perspective. This is how they've chosen the framework they've chosen to put up, and they'll interpret all the scriptures through it, which is fine. But but unless we're going to argue about the actual framework, like this other language he uses, which is sort of philosophical language, like finite creatures, finite creatures always have the capacity. To choose one, well, if we're going to be technical about it, the capacity to choose evil is actually a deficiency. It's not a capacity. Otherwise, if it was a potential built into our nature, then our nature is perfected in the act of choosing evil, which I don't think he would want to say. So, really, it's a deficiency. It's not a capacity. It's not a power. It's a lack of power, which is that's why God never chooses evil, is because he's infinitely powerful. Right. He is infinitely powerful. And so he he nothing can thwart his clinging to his own being, his own nature, which is infinite goodness. It's why Christ couldn't have sinned, according to, you know, a lot of the tradition. It's not because he lacked humanity. It's because he had the in his humanity and his divinity, the complete and total power, the total capacity to fully know the father and to adhere to the father and to do his will. Right. So. I think these sorts of these sorts of moves are a little confusing and they're kind of beside the point because they're the 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 rhetoric is framed in such a way that's like look I'm just reading the scriptures and it just seems like some people can choose to to reject God or you can make this move like towards common everyday experience look I just know like, I myself I choose to do wrong things even though I know I you know that they, I shouldn't do them and so I think that kind of that can that can put forth the the uh, the appearance as if this is just simple observation it really isn't it's it's really thorough interpretation and so i would take i would dispute them at, at that level right so i don't i don't see where the argument is otherwise except at the level of rhetoric and this kind of thing
1: all right let's move on to the next concern Strobel recognizes that in colossians 116 christ is said to have been the agent through whom all things were created and then in Colossians 1.20, is called the agent through whom all things are to be reconciled. Paul Copan responds, you have to keep reading to get the full picture. Paul goes on to say in verse 23, now he has reconciled you if you continue in the faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So there's a condition there. We see something similar in Romans 5, just as all in Adam fall, so all in Christ, the second Adam, are reconciled to God. But these aren't identical groups. To be in Adam, the old fallen humanity, is to face condemnation to be a part of the new humanity in Christ through faith is to experience redemption. Strobel then concludes, you can't disconnect these texts from what Paul says elsewhere, that some will end up shut out from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, or that those who preach a false gospel are under God's curse, Galatians 1, 8 to 9.
2: So three things to say here. One is I'm going to take that last little remark by by Strobel. Once again, there's this kind of presumption throughout all of these arguments that as soon as you note something like someone can be cursed by God uh, or that the wicked will be destroyed, that somehow the universalists should be caught off guard and surprised as if we've never thought of divine judgment, the destruction of the wicked, (laughs) putting to death of the old man. Right. So I'm just noting that once again, we've already talked about that, but, but, that, that does lead me to believe that the authors here sort of just have a shallow view of what Christian universalism really is. If they think that amounts to evidence against Christian universalism, that's a, that's a huge problem because I don't really know who they're talking about a lot. Now, I'll make two points, though. One is going to be a gr- gr- grammatical one, a sort of nerdy Greek one <laughs> about Colossians 1.23. And then also I want to make a broader conceptual or theological point about especially Romans 5. So the first one is this, and, and I think, David, you sent me uh, someone, I don't remember who it is now. Jonathan made,
1: Jonathan Mitchell.
2: Yeah, yeah. He made this point, which is a good one. I want to add to it. He says, you know, the, the the particle there used if, A, A in Greek, E, yeah, S, Y, Yoda. Yeah, that, that, he says, you know, and, and he's right. It can often also mean, not necessarily if, like a condition, but sense, a, a
1: particle of fulfilled
2: condition exactly, uh, right, which means it's a it's a uh, it's a condition in the sense of of um um uh, a given, right, provided that given that sense or in light of the fact that etc right That's true. I want to add a few other points there. If, if the Greek has a conditional uh, that could have been used, uh, the verb could have been put in a conditional tense or a mood and it isn't there. Uh, that's number one. There's also another particle that's often used in a conditional construction. on. Uh, it's uh, alpha uh, nu, and it's usually con- and sometimes even with a a on That would be more of a conditional construction. It's not there. You could even if you wanted to do a conditional move, you could you could put it in the imperative, right? That would have been a, a much more direct way. Stay, remain in the faith, right? That's a that's a command. You know, with the with the implicit condition, because otherwise you're gonna you know you're, you're gonna lose. What's what's more clearly going on there in the Greek is that he's trying to explain how it is that we ha- it doesn't just say as they quote it, having been reconciled to him. It says having been reconciled to his death. Right, that's the exact verse. And the problem there is how is it that somebody's death, you know, from their perspective, still years ago. How is it that that has accomplished the reconciliation? Well, it's because or given that or since or in light of the fact that you remain in your faith right, in him. Your remaining in faith is what explains the fact that you have been reconciled through his death, which has already occurred. But as we see in Colossians 3, of which I've already mentioned, Will continue to occur as you put to death the pieces of yourself that tend toward the earth and put off the old man. Right. So these. So I'm just all that is sort of supporting the point that your uh, that Mitchell made. So I want to make though a broader conceptual point there. So I don't. In other words, I don't uh, grammatical grounds. I don't see a conditional there, Uh, but I also think there's a conceptual problem because the whole argument it seems to be that copen and Stro- strobel are are uh, are giving is basically a straightforward i think fairly simplistic free will one right they just are basically a, a, a appealing to certain passages that appeal to us choose the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. Or they'll look around and say, look, don't you know, sometimes people choose things that they know are wrong, so they're culpable, or some people choose to do right, even if it's hard for them to do so, so they're praiseworthy, right? That's a very simplistic, you might say libertine almost, sense of free will that, look, it's all up to your choice. That's a little problematic in Romans 5, because I don't at least remember choosing to sin in Adam. When did I choose that? So what's really odd to me conceptually or theologically about their argument is that they want to use the parallelism of since we have all sinned in Adam, therefore we must all, right, if we're all going to be raised to life in Christ, it's conditional on the second one. I have to choose to be reconciled if I remain in my faith. I have to choose to be reconciled in Christ, the second one. And yet, would they argue then that somehow we all chose to sin in Adam, like personally? I actually think there's a certain way you can make that argument, but they wouldn't like the way I do it. But but nevertheless, I just think it's important to note about the sort of internal weaknesses of this argument is that even if you don't hold to a full-blown original sin doctrine of Romans 5, you at least have to admit that the condition seems to be only one way. And yet you're trying to use the parallelism of Adam and Christ to say, well, what's true of Adam, like all sin, right, is going... So, I'm just saying that there's, there's got to be something else going on there to explain Romans 5. You can't simply appeal to this conditional uh, framework.
1: Let me just read real quick a quote from Robin Perry. He says, Christ does not merely represent a limited group of people within Israel and the nations. Christ's death is not merely on behalf of some elect grouping within the wider family of humanity. He represented all, and his death was for all without any exception. In his resurrection, the whole of creation is reconciled, and the whole of humanity is redeemed. None of this makes participation in redemption automatic. Repentance and faith are necessary responses to grace. Paul still urges his hearers to be reconciled to God immediately after declaring that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Right. I think that covers some of the same ground that you were talking about.
2: Yeah, and you know, and we'll make this note probably as we go, but universalism doesn't deny free will. It just thinks that free will is uh, something that doesn't present an ultimate obstacle to God knowing how to get to every creature that he himself has made.
1: All right, another concern. Strobel recognized that the Bible sometimes uses the word all to describe those who are ultimately redeemed, as in 1 Timothy 2.6, which says Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people, to which Copan responds, We need to examine that word all closely. For example, when the Gospel of Mark says all the people of Jerusalem flocked to be baptized by John, he doesn't mean every single individual was doing that. It simply meant a lot of people. In this case, Jesus did pay for all the sins of the world and made grace available to all sinners, but we have to accept that payment on our behalf if we're going to benefit from it. Not everyone will do that.
2: Yeah, and and that's fine, but that's just a bunch of uh, additional qualifications that aren't in the biblical text. Right, it's it's a uh, well. We know all doesn't really mean all. We know that it means just those that that accept it, and we also seemingly know that most won't or many won't. Well, that, that that's not what that First Timothy text says. And in fact, if so, what I would say is this: Yeah, panta can can sometimes mean uh, many, just as by the way, many can sometimes mean all. That's true. That's a that's a Greek. But look, it's really, not, so what, what do you have to do? You have to look at the context. Well, surely when you're looking at the gospel of Mark, you see all the people going out. You can understand that that means a whole lot. But like they've already brought up, let's look at Colossians 1, 16 and 20. What Were all things created through him or not? Right? Seemingly mm-hmm. all, right? Or what about John 1, right? All things were created through him. Okay, what about what about uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Will he be all in all, right? So again, we can't just make simple appeals to scripture. You have to ask, why is it, what gives the grounds for justifying, adding in all those other qualifications that Copan adds, which are not in the text? That's called theology. And so when you do that, that's fine. We all have to do that to some extent because we have to actively interpret to some to some extent. Otherwise, you don't even know what's being said or you can't understand what the what's being communicated through the scriptures. It's just that I, I felt like often in this chapter, the rhetoric was very much like we're just, you know, you can't be a Christian universalist and read scripture, essentially, was the, the feeling I was getting. And I was like, but hold on, you just read a scripture that said he is he is the savior of all. And you said, number one, well, potentially not really. Okay. That's not in the text. And number two, uh, and in fact, it's only these people that, you know, accept freely, blah, blah, blah. We know a lot won't do that because we know a lot of people like today do bad things or something. And it's like, you know, that's, that's, that's an argument of some sort, but that is not just simply a biblical text. That is just you interpreting it in light of those, uh, Already prior decided framework. So, so I, I think that's fine. But if we if we're gonna do that, let's let's really do that.
1: All right. Seventh, Strobel recognizes Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost, Luke nineteen ten. Strobel then asks, if some were actually left behind, did he fail? Copan responds, no, he didn't consider it to be a failure just because there would be those who refused to take the narrow road. Jesus acknowledged that the eleven disciples the Father had given to him were pers- were preserved, even though the son of perdition, Judas, didn't truly belong to Jesus, John seventeen twelve. At the cross Jesus completed his mission. It is finished, John nineteen thirty. Isaiah fifty three says, God would see the anguished death of his suffering servant as an atoning work that would justify many, Isaiah fifty three eleven, even if not all would embrace the Messiah. Jesus identified with us in life and death in order to save those who would choose the narrow path. Think of the parable of the prodigal son, he added, Jesus leaves his hearers with this implicit challenge. Will we go inside to celebrate with the repentant sinner? Or will we stay outside as the self-righteous older brother? God doesn't cancel the celebration just because there are some who don't want to go inside. Why should God defer to the naysayers over the willing participants? It's up to humans to say yes or no to God's initiating grace. Jesus' very teaching assumes that some will embrace him while others will not. A point that the parable of the four soils makes in Matthew 13.
2: Right. So again, <laughs> there's a few things here. One is that, um, again, nobody in the, that I know of that's a Christian Universalist is is denying that salvation entails the free embrace of the truth. But here's my problem as, uh, with some of the way this is framed. It sounds a lot like very often that Strobel and Copan are saying that we are free to accept the truth. But I want to know what happened to the fact that the truth sets us free. Right. And so it's, it's so somehow it's it's not simply the case that all that's going on is we're all, we, God just created us and like wound us up and wanted to see what we would do whenever he let us go. There's something God does. And I sometimes wonder what they would say about conversion. I mean, does God not did God not knock Saul down on the ground uh, and and change him in that instant? Was he not the worst and chief of sinners? You know, is it not God's kindness that leads us to repentance? I mean, does what does God do that actually, can God appeal to us in any way in order to change and convert our hearts? I would think so that that's just as much of a biblical teaching as anything. And so there is this kind of sense in which I think they try to kind of relieving God of the responsibility to do um, <laughs> To get to every sinner, when it seems to me that the truth sets free just as much as, as it's the case that we're free to accept the truth, and so um, it seems like the truth needs to be revealed if we're going to be fully free. But that's a different sort of side note here. What I want to, what I really wanted to focus on on this point was, I, I personally still don't quite understand how it is that um, God can both intend the end, which they've conceded right earlier that God does intend the salvation of every person. They said that that was true in 2 Peter 3, 9, right? They agree with that. That doesn't happen, but it's not a failure. So to me, it's a, we're in a dilemma. Either God's purpose really was for the salvation of every single person and not simply to send a son to die, so that when he said it is finished, he doesn't mean literally like, I just finished my work because I'm dead, I'm about to die because or it, w- the work will extend, as it says right in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So it seems like the, the work that God intended either needs to be brought to completion, and, and that completion is the, the individual salvation of every single person, or that really wasn't a part of his absolute will. And so that he can rest satisfied and say, I did not fail, whenever not every single person is saved. But it seems to me like they're trying to save both at once. On the one hand, it is a part of God's absolute will for all creation that every single individual be saved. And on the other hand, when that doesn't come to pass, it's still not a failure of what he he willed. I don't see how that works personally. Um, The last thing I want to mention, though, about this point was kind of the incredible use of the prodigal son story. To me, the entire point of the parable is that the father is discontent unless the son comes home. Right. I mean, I've heard it said before. I think it's right. It's not really about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigality of the father's love. That the father is sitting on the porch waiting for his younger son to come home. And when he does, he throws the party. Why would we think the father would have any other disposition towards the older begrudging brother as he did to the younger brother? Are they not both his sons? Right. And so it's it's kind of amazing to me to, for them to invite us to say, well, you know, God wouldn't consider it a fit. In other words, the father wouldn't consider the celebration any more dowered because his other son stayed out and was excluded from it, even though the whole point of the story has been for his longing and his desire for the younger one to come back so they could have a celebration altogether. It seems to me that if the story were to go on, that the same father who felt that way about the younger son would feel the same exact way about the older son and his refusing to come celebrate the resurrection, as he says, of the young son, would itself initiate another prodigal son story, just this time about the older brother rather than the younger brother. But somehow,
1: It does introduce some callousness into the picture of that parable of the father.
2: Right, but then earlier in the chapter... What what they said was, who doesn't desire the salvation of everyone, right? Well, apparently the father of the prodigal son story no longer desires it, and he's celebrating <laughs> inside with his younger son, and his older sons outside, right? And so that's 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 a kind of move that I see very often. Is we can speak a little abstractly and kind of with that, with imprecision, but look at the end of the day, what we're talking about are all of our sons. And daughters, and friends, and brothers, and sisters, and everyone right out, all the way to the entirety of the human race. We're not talking about, we're not talking about just uh, some numbers or something. And so it, it is kind of a, a callous uh, a callousness introduced into the very heart of a story that I thought was all about how there is utterly no callousness whatsoever in the in the heart of the father. So that's kind of bizarre to me.
1: All right, the eighth concern. Strobel quotes New Testament scholar William Barclay, who said. If one man remains outside the love of God at the end of time, it means that that one man has defeated the love of God, and that is impossible. Copan responds, but we can't ignore the many scriptures that indicate some will have their own way and get their divorce from God despite his best efforts. God doesn't force his love on people. Jude 21 reminds us, keep yourself in God's love. That suggests that we can remove ourselves from God's loving influence. If God's undefeatable sovereignty means that all will be saved, how is this accomplished since it's up to human beings whether to accept or reject God's initiating grace? We routinely read in the scripture that God does his utmost to reach people, only to be rebuffed. God actually appears exasperated at the rebellion of his people. For example, in the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, when when Israel produces bad fruit, God asks, what more could have been done for my vineyard, that is Israel, than I have done for it? In Matthew 23, Jesus sweeps over Jerusalem, longing to gather the city as a hen gathers her chicks. But Jerusalem refused. In Acts 7.51, before he was stoned, Stephen accuses his stiff-necked persecutors of always resisting the Holy Spirit. For stubborn rebels, the more God pours out his grace, the more they want to flee. They want to find happiness on their own terms.
2: Yeah, so again, this this is sort of a... um... It seems to be to me a repetition of a mantra they have going, which is, look, it's just the case that freedom means we can reject God. And that happens all the time. And God doesn't like that. And it's like, sure, of course. Uh, I don't see anywhere in those texts where it says absolutely. And in the end, finally, without any sort of uh, possibility of um, conversion, every single person will end up there, will end up in a state of total and total uh, complete rebellion. In fact, I will say this. What was so interesting to me about citing Acts 7.51 is that the wording there is the strongest. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Well, guess who was among the crowd uh, uh, against whom S- Stephen spoke that? Saul, the one who's, who was holding the tunics and overseeing the stoning of Stephen. So Saul was among those who always resist the Holy Spirit. And surely we know from just two chapters later what happens to him. He's changed the road of Damascus and he becomes Paul. So it's kind of amazing to me that one of the main, you know, the strongest texts in terms of the sheer wording is exactly of uh, of a sentence pronounced against somebody who will not only change and completely become uh, one who not only resists the Holy Spirit, but who so welcomes the Holy Spirit that he'll end up suffering and dying and promoting the gospel that he once persecuted, as he himself writes all over the the New Testament. So apparently you can always resist the Holy Spirit and still yet be saved by grace. Um,
1: It also also seems here that uh, there's sort of a sort of a feeling here that I guess that Israel's not going to make it. Looks, right. you know, yeah, which then contrasts with Paul's declaration in Romans that all Israel will be saved.
2: Absolutely, and 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 again, what's the logic of Romans nine through eleven? I know we haven't like done a, but if you really looked in there, the logic, especially in Romans eleven, is death and resurrection. He actually uses those terms. You were cut off the, the, the natural branches, sure, they'll be cut off, but they will not stumble so as to fall. And they will and the and then they use this, the same language of death and resurrection, just as the Gentiles could be grafted on unnaturally, or you might say supra-naturally, onto the tree of Israel, the olive tree so that anyone that rejects from the olive tree and therefore falls off the tree, they can be brought back to life as well. So the pattern, that's something I said earlier, the pattern of Christian conversion is death and resurrection, because that's the heart of our faith, the death and resurrection of Christ, right? That's Romans 6. Why are you baptized and so forth, right? So this is why it's just, it's amazing to me to keep, They keep sort of noting one side like, well, look, there's stuff here about destruction, about death, about, you know, like, sure, of course, that's necessary for resurrection, for grace. Uh, Yes, I can resist the Holy Spirit and I can be among the crowd of those who always resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, but also, it looks like I can you know, uh, be sh- by, by blinded by a light and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and that can send me on a journey of complete restoration and of bringing others along that way. Or as you say with Israel, you know, they can seem like the, it's the end, but they will be saved. Or how about Revelation 21? It's the new Jerusalem going down to earth. And this is the new Jerusalem, the new city. So it looks like Jerusalem doesn't finally and eternally reject and I, I want to say something about Revelation because it's the same pattern. And I, I actually, I, I can't remember if they bring this up or not. Oh, no, they do later. So perhaps I'll save it. But let's just bookmark this for the stuff about the, the, the okay. names written in the book of life.
1: Okay. All right. Ninth concern. Strobel recognizes that in Philippians two ten through 11, it says every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He then puts the question to Copan. Doesn't this suggest that everyone will eventually come to faith? Copan responds, but will they bow willingly? Paul okay. is citing Isaiah 45, 23 there, and he's aware that not all bowing before God springs from humble, repentant hearts. God's defeated foes will bow before him in shameful, reluctant acknowledgement that he is Lord, Zephaniah 2, 11. Just a few chapters later, Isaiah 49, 23 indicates that some will bow down before God and lick the dust at his feet. His enemies exhibit a feigned obedience. In Psalm 81:15, the psalmist says, those who hate the Lord, would pretend to obey him, and their time of punishment would be forever.
2: I uh, Let's just note, there's nothing contradictory about initially bowing to the Lord because you uh, unwillingly, but then that very act leading to willing acceptance of the Lord. I, I think it's kind of amazing that Copan here set questions, do they acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord willingly? Well, the same Paul who wrote Philippians also wrote 1 Corinthians 12, where it says no one can confess Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, and, that, and then that anyone who can't say Jesus is Lord doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That's his point in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So how could they then in Philippians 2, all every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How could they do that apart from the Holy Spirit? And if they do confess, they don't have the Holy Spirit. If they if they do, if, if, or if they don't confess, they don't have the Holy Spirit. If they do confess, they do have the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit which saves and recreates and resurrects and renews. So if, I would say from Paul's own thought, how could they not be doing it willingly in cooperation with the Spirit who's poured out in their hearts? Like Romans 10 says, how could they not do it? Or how could they do it in any other way except willingly, ultimately, right? Unless uh, unless um, Paul's wrong in First Corinthians 12. So well, if h- they confess, they have the Spirit.
1: Well, in Romans 14.11, uh, we see an indication that, that that'll be a, a glad confession because it says, therefore, it has been written as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me in every tongue. Well, David, of Hart heart translates, shall joyfully praise God.
2: Mm-hmm yes exactly and so that's and that's a correct that's a better more accurate translation so that's that's so i think again it's uh we see how the framework the sort of framework of eternal conscious torment that that basically is a simple appeal to freedom and that some people just sadly don't ever accept that kind of really starts to overdetermine even these passages where i would think if you look at other parts of paul i mean like they said to do earlier right When they're like consider you can't separate these passages from other parts where paul says you know, in First Thessalonians, there's going to be destruction. Well, you also can't separate, for example, Philippians 2 from, I would say, First Corinthians 12 and Romans 14, which seems to indicate if every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's not going to be in the way that a, you know, a triumphant king sort of forces the enemy to feign it. It's going to be one which comes from the Spirit.
1: All right, this is the last concern, and so I'll, I'll run this one by you and then let you kind of close things out. Strobel asked Copan for concluding reasons that Christian universalism falls short biblically. He replied by saying, Both the Old and New Testaments reveal the opposite of universalism. We see the contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous in Psalms, Proverbs, and Daniel 12.2, which talks about those awakening to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. In the New Testament, there is a judgment of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, or the simple contrast in John 3.16 between those who have eternal life and those who perish. Revelation 13.8, we find a limited, unexpanding number of names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, without which one cannot be in the presence of God. In Romans 9.3, Paul wished he could be condemned so that his Israelite brothers and sisters could be saved. Matthew 12:31-32 talks about the unpardonable sin that won't be forgiven in the life to come. When asked whether only a few would be saved, Jesus replied in Luke 13.24, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. None of these fit the universalist narrative.
2: I think it's very interesting that he brings up Revelation 13.8 here, where it's speaking about the names written in the Book of Life. I wish he had gone on in the rest of Revelation, because far from it not uh, uh, comporting with the universalist position, it sort of suggests exactly that. Revelation 13, as probably people are aware, is sort of the completion of the enemies of God in in, uh, in the book of Revelation. You might, some people have called it the unholy trinity, right, with the dragon and the beast and his prophet, right, the false prophet. And one of the most common categories, you'll see, for example, in Revelation 16, when the three frog-like demonic spirits are sent out to gather, quote, the kings of the earth to make war against the lamb and his, and his saints, right? The kings of the earth show up over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. They're always in opposition to, they're gathering like foot soldiers for, for the unholy trinity against God and the saints in the church, right? So as I said, in Revelation 16, they're brought by the demonic spirits. In Revelation 18, they weep at the destruction of Babylon, the whore of Babylon, because, quote, they had committed adultery with her and her luxuries and so forth. So, so they're very much on the bad side, <laughs> it's <clears throat> really no cl- but then what's really fascinating is the last time they're mentioned something very different is going on in revelation 21 the new jerusalem right is descending and you get the beautiful description of the city and the gates are always open and so forth well it says right there in revelation 21 verse 24 that the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and the glory of the nations into the city now, at first, you might think it's sort of like this—the way they were trying to interpret Philippians too. Like, well, it's not willingly, right? It's like a parade. Like, we beat the kings of the earth and, and the unholy Trinity, and they've been thrown in the lake of fire, and you know. And so, we're going to parade them through so that we can sort of put them on display, like a triumphal entry, like Rome would do. Uh, Well, it says just three verses later, by the way, it says that everyone in the Lake of Fire, right? Their names were not written in the book of life. That was back in Revelation 2015. So here we are in 21, the kings of the earth are bringing the the splendor of the nations into the new Jerusalem. And it says just two verses later, or three verses later in verse 27, nothing impure will enter that city. Only those whose names are written in the book of life. So the full picture, if you want to look at the full picture of Revelation from 13 all the way to 21 chapters, is that the kings of the earth have been constantly in rebellion against God. They have been in league with the unholy trinity. They have been attacking the lamb and his, and you know, they have been destroyed actually like three times in the book already. <laughs> and uh, they are probably, I think, good candidates for those thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, right? Even though it doesn't say that, but it's, it's 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 the devil and his angels and right, all the people that have followed and then here, but yet, lo and behold, somehow all of that judgment, all of that punishment, all of that throwing into the lake of sulfur has led to their entry into the, the New Jerusalem, and they could not enter there unless they were pure, because nothing impure will enter that city. And they couldn't enter there unless their names had eventually been written in the, in the book of life, because nothing enters that his his name is not in. The, the book of life. So why would that not suggest exactly the Christian universalist picture? Far from it not comporting or can't be squared with it. It's totally and completely inconsistent with something that was already pointed out in the third century. So I, I would do that. You know, we could go through other scriptures, but I just wanted to focus on that one because I think it's, it's, it's such a clear picture of that same pattern that I've been trying to return to throughout mm-hmm. all of this. The pattern of conversion you might say the logic of salvation is death and resurrection. So, of course, there will be destruction. Of course, you're thrown into the lake of fire. Of course, you will pass through fire and and all your works will be burned up, like 1 Corinthians 3 says, where Paul gives the clearest picture of his idea of the afterlife, I think, that there is in his writings. And he never mentions hell, by the way, which David Harris rightly said is a, would be a colossally, uh, <laughs> neglectful thing. If, if, if the fundamental thing driving Paul's evangelistic efforts was hell and he never mentions it in any of his writings. So I, I, that's always the, I mean, this is the, and origin had made this point already about first Corinthians 15, which by the way, if we're going to bring in the enemies and all that other stuff, it says that, right. Christ, that, that The son will bring to subjection all of his enemies. And at that point, when he's brought them all under subjection, he will hand the kingdom over to the father. So that, quote, God might be all in all. Origen's already pointed out. Well, hold on a second. If the son, and it also says, if the son himself becomes subject to the father, which of course created all these problems in the early church about Christological and so forth. But he says, why would our subjection to the father be any different than the sons, and certainly the sons wasn't coerced, it was something that he came or he does freely embracing the total, uh, invincible power of love. And so, for him, he read that precisely in a universalistic sense that the defeat of all God's enemies, with this, which the son will accomplish in and through all of us, is nothing less than once again their salvation, which they will freely embrace eventually, and so. I actually think that the Christian universalist paradigm, this is sort of the refrain I've been beating throughout all of this, Mm -hmm. it very much illumines and can easily comport with a whole host of scriptures. Give me the worst hell scripture you can possibly cite. I will say that, yes, there's nothing less than the total destruction of the false self that I've made myself, the ancient man of Colossians 3. That has to happen. So I can accommodate that pretty clearly. But what about you saying that Ro- Ro- Romans 11:32 doesn't really mean all or only potentially all or 1st Timothy doesn't mean he's really the savior of all but sort of maybe could be right that, so uh, so that's that's a choice that you've made for other reasons apart from the bible and it's the way that you then read the bible and i think that the christian universalists have d- have done the same thing and have made better arguments more convincing and they and it illuminates the scriptures just as well so i don't think that you know, we could get into the details about Matthew 25. Uh, I think it's interesting that, again, as Origen pointed out, there's no hint in Matthew 25 of a general resurrection. And so we're not even totally sure when this takes place. And some people say, well, but Daniel 12 says that there is right a resurrection. Well, right, but that's precisely what's left out in Matthew 25, interestingly. So so we could go down those, right, those rabbit holes. But I think the bigger point here is that I really don't think Strobel and Copen, you know, for all of their... I think, you know, respectable qualities, which they have, I really don't think that they have seriously engaged the actual substance of Christian universalists hardly at all. And so it really makes a lot of these arguments and these comments ring incredibly hollow, at least to my ears.
1: Well, Jordan, I want to thank you for your scholarship and the time that you take into look into these critiques, and to give us your best thoughts about them. Uh, the next time we get together, I hope that we can discuss you know, your book on Maximus Confessor, and I appreciate your ongoing scholarship and just look, looking forward to hearing from you more in the future.
2: Thank you very much, David.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.